It is uh, April 16th, and um, this is uh, an exciting time for us. Amen? Our message today is called Beyond the Tomb. And um, I want to start by doing something that is not normal for me. I want to congratulate you. I want to tell you that I'm proud of you. You've overcome amazing things just to be here this morning. You didn't succumb to the gospel of greed. You couldn't be bribed into a service with Easter egg drops from helicopters or TV giveaways or Starbucks bonus cards. Apparently at Life Changing Ministries, you've decided that when Jesus was raised from the dead, that was enough for you. So we'll just go ahead and say no to the Circus Olay Frenchman in tights service and rely upon the life-changing power of the gospel. Amen? I want to refer quickly to last week. Last Sunday, the message title was Sweet Victory. We looked at holy cows and honeybees. On Jesus' triumphal entry Sunday... We noticed the way that God took clean and unclean animals and did amazing things with them. The Lord of glory rode in on an animal that was unclean. A honeybee, an animal that's unclean, produces kosher honey. And the way in which God can take a life that is a total mess and bring something sweet out of it. Wednesday, we taught on the three days between the crucifixion and the resurrection. The triumph of the cross. Not a sad event. The pinnacle of human history. The first time in human history a man was sinless and obedient to the Father all the way to the point of death. That it was not a sad event. It was a triumph. An extraordinary feat for the human race. This morning I want to talk to you about beyond the tomb. Let us go to John 3. This is a topic or a chapter that many people are very familiar with and others believe they're familiar with and don't begin to understand at all. In the third chapter of John, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. We know immediately that this man, Nicodemus, is several things. He's very educated in the word. He has the Tanakh memorized. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council, so we know that he is important to the people of Israel. It's extraordinary the way that Jesus smacks him around theologically. I mean, it is. He basically calls him snake-bitten. It says, if the Son of Man be lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert. I mean, he is calling him bitten by poisonous snakes and doesn't know it. Another time, he says, you must be born of heaven. You must be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand. And Jesus said, yeah, you don't understand the path of the wind either. Jesus is again smacking him around theologically. Because Ecclesiastes 11 clearly Uh, Jesus is referring to says as you don't understand the path of the wind you don't understand how a baby is formed in its mother's belly 
The encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus is an extraordinary encounter. And people quote it often. They say, you must be born again. So in the United States, we have this term, I am a born again Christian. And that is a beautiful term. Unless all it is, is a term. So often, we have relied on a singular church experience. Elder Steve, are you in the room? Boz, you in the room? Please make sure you take care of that. So often we have relied on a singular experience. And that singular experience, you can, y'all can keep your eyes on me. We don't want there to be any distraction in this service, not from the devil or anywhere else. We've relied on a singular prayer, a singular moment at an altar where we say that because an event happened at that altar, you can live like hell all the way to heaven. The Bible has not taught this. It's never taught this. This interaction with Jesus and Nicodemus becomes somewhat of a metaphor forever. A very interesting thing. Can I tell you the devil would like to stop what we're doing here today and it is not going to happen. When demoniacs walk in off of the street intending to stop your service. Oh, praise God there are elders in this church, huh? What we see happen between Jesus and Nicodemus is extraordinary. Nicodemus is moved by this event. Look with me in John 7. In John 7, verse 50. You would think having been insulted, Jesus would have made an enemy of Nicodemus forever, but that is not so. In John 7, in verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? He puts himself at odds with his brothers in defending Jesus as they're attacking Jesus. This would be good enough for most people. He's heard the gospel. He's heard you must be born again. He might even agree with that term. He is now defending Jesus publicly when Jesus is attacked. This would be good enough for most people. We see Nicodemus again in this gospel. Look at John 19, beginning in verse 38. Say, there when you're there. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. When you look at Matthew 27, 60, you don't have to turn there. We'll put it on the screen for you. It says that this new tomb had been cut out of a rock. What we begin to see happening here is that it looks like Nicodemus first comes to Jesus at night for fear. He gets insulted by Jesus, really put in his place. You don't know anything is the sum total of his conversation with Jesus. You're Israel's teacher and you don't know these things, but it begins to move on his heart. Later on, he hears Jesus attacked by his brothers and he's defending. He's saying, hey, hey, does our law condemn him without first hearing from him? Of course, he stopped short of saying he's had a conversation with him. And in John 19, we see he is there burying Jesus. Man, don't you hope he was a Christian? Well, they'll hire somebody to lie at his funeral and stand up and say that they know he was. You know what's wrong with Nicodemus' life in the story? It stops right here. 
we do not have anything beyond the tomb of Jesus. We know that he began to identify with Jesus. We know that he interacted with Jesus on some level. And we know that he helped bury the body of Jesus. But you don't know anything beyond that. This is so much like many Christians today. They believe that they have accomplished all that there is in the gospel because they carved out of their stony heart a small place for Jesus. And their relationship with him never goes beyond the tomb. All they know is that he died to forgive them. And that's the end of the story. But that is not the end of the story on this resurrection Sunday. Amen. It was a triumph in human history that Jesus would be obedient to death. But him being raised from the dead is something altogether more than that. It was meant to empower men and women to live divine lives. Lives filled with the very power of God. Lives that would be exactly like Jesus. Even doing greater things than he did. Nicodemus, we hope he was a Christian. Do you know history argues whether he was or wasn't? Because his life never went beyond the tomb. How far has your life gone? Have you decided that Jesus is right and you're wrong like Nicodemus did in John 3? Have you even defended Jesus publicly when you hear him spoken about it hurts your feelings? Maybe you would donate some money to help bury him. But that's where your testimony stops. Or have you experienced the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that has so thoroughly transformed your life that divine deeds are accompanying you wherever you go? See, history wonders about Nicodemus because his election and his calling were not born out in his life. And heaven will wonder about you if your election and calling are not born out in your life. It turns out that rooted in the law, there is a very ancient hope. A hope that was far more than a tomb. A hope that was far more than just a crucifixion. A hope in something beyond the tomb. It begins in Genesis 50. In verse 24, at least as I'm going to tell it today. Joseph has become the monarch of the world. Joseph has become the savior of Eve. Of Egypt, Zaphonath Paneah. He has messengers going before him, clearing the way. He's married to the most amazing woman in Egypt. And he's second only to the throne of Pharaoh. Joseph is an extraordinary figure. It says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land. To the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. What an awkward picture that is. The ruler of the world does not want to leave his bones in the place of his reign. Because he was looking forward to something that was so much more than where he would be entombed. He was looking forward to something that was so much more than people venerating a grave. He wanted to rise from the dead with his brothers in the land of the promise. 
Oh, Christianity goes so far beyond the grave. Can you imagine these poor Israelites carrying around bones? How long were they in Egypt? Oh, man. Between the promise of Abraham and the time they come out of Egypt is 400 years. That's a long time to carry around bones. Sometimes we carry around the death of Jesus in our bodies so that we might be able to display the life of Jesus in our bodies. Him dying puts you in right order with God so that you might receive His resurrection power. Christianity goes beyond the tomb, people. We can make pilgrimages to the church of the sepulcher, which is about to collapse under the weight of the lie that it is. But all you would see is a tomb. And yet, if you hit your knees in sincerity, raising your hands to the God of heaven, he will fill you with the very presence that filled the tomb. In Ezekiel 37, we've moved from the law to the prophets. And verse 3 There's a question. God asked a man a question. Son of man, can these bones live? I said, oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Ezekiel felt trapped by the question. There has to be a reason you're asking me. He said, only you know. You know how this story goes. Pastor Pence preached on it, I think, the last time he was here. Some 14 times spirit is mentioned here in the text. Ezekiel begins to prophesy to the bones and say, live. And the bones begin to rattle. Sinew and and muscle and flesh begin to come together and before long an army is on its feet. See, we don't just carry around an empty tomb. They carried the bones of Joseph knowing that one day their relationship would go way beyond the tomb. In Ezekiel's day, he's looking at something that is death everywhere. All around him, death. Can it come to life is the question from God. And it required a man to act on earth for that army to come to life. In the law and in the prophets, the hope of the resurrection is expressed. It is also in the writings. Look at Psalm 16 with me in verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Say, my body body. will rest secure. secure. Oh, ladies, that are to put you at total ease in this age of airbrushed fantasy. Your hope is not in your symmetry. Your hope is that even if your body is put in a grave, your relationship with God goes way beyond that grave. Rest secure. Why? Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. The grave is not my final stop. The problem with Nicodemus' relationship with the Lord is that you know nothing of it beyond the grave. Look at verse 11 in Psalm 16. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. 
There is something so much more important than just a sacrificial death. As triumphant as that is, this is where most stop. They want forgiveness for their sin. Gimme, gimme, my name is Jimmy. Me and Susie, us four and no more. It is a greedy gospel. And to get people to want that, they pimp out the church of Jesus Christ like a prostitute. They promise you, gratifying your flesh, that you will get more than you give. Then they ought to do a reverse offering. If you give me $100 and that means God gives you $700, then why don't we just cut that shortcut out? Why don't I just give you the $100 and let God give me the $700? You know why they don't do it? Because they're liars and thieves and we put up with them. We put up with them when they fly Easter eggs in helicopters and rain them upon our children as if that is something that is godly. We put up with them when they give away big screen TVs in church and roll cars in like it's the price is right. We put up with them when they bring circus acts in the church because our relationship never got out of the tomb. It's essentially dead. We've learned to say all of the right things. But the resurrection power of God is not working in our midst like it's supposed to. Or we would not want such worldly trinkets. You may have noticed on Facebook or in some other digital media. Right now there's advertisements everywhere about how to preach the best Easter sermon. How to make sure that you take advantage of the once a year crowd. How to make sure that you maximize your opportunity. Everything that is taught on those lines, I mean everything, is a compromise of the gospel. It basically says this to you, our guests today. We will be something other than we're supposed to be today in the hopes that you will like us and then not notice when the real us shows up next week. I don't have it in me to be duplicitous. Because Jesus Christ was the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was never duplicitous. I have no desire to trick you into anything. The truth is, I hope in my feeble humanity to do something that is divine and beautiful. To raise up the very standard of God in a way that you can see the difference between Him and you. And strive to become more like Him. That's my hope today. I am not satisfied with a Christianity that just carves out of a stony rock in their heart a small place for Jesus that goes no further. I have been to funeral after funeral where I heard some six-foot icicle lie to the people. Oh, at the resurrection, this one will rise. You didn't even know him. How could you say that? Because it's what the people want you to say. This last year, I preached my own father's funeral, and I told the truth. It was a white-knuckled, hair-raising event. What would people say about you today if you died? Has your relationship with the Lord gone beyond the grave? Or is the best they could do is describe you like Nicodemus? Well, we know that he had some kind of interaction with Jesus. We know he knew the words born again. We know that. We know that, that sometimes he defended Jesus. You know, you know every tree by its fruit. 
What did you do? Did your life produce more Christians or were you a sterile Christian? Did your life produce disciples? Have you ever read the parable of the sower and seen 30, 60, and 100 fold? The, the only way to read this, there is no other way to read it. The bare minimum that the Christian life produces is 30 others. The bare minimum. We're happy if somebody comes to church twice in a month. Oh, come on, saints. That is Christianity still stuck in the tomb. It's not capable of producing life because it's never received the real life of God. They're only asking for fire insurance. I want so much more than fire insurance. I want so much more for my king. He is worthy of every nation. He is worthy of every tribe. He's worthy of every tongue. He is worthy. What does your life say about him and his worthiness? Have you boiled him down in your thoughts to something that you fit in your schedule? Or is he the master of your schedule? Have you trivialized him to a small prayer once a day? Or has he become the very anthem of your life? And before you answer the question, if I ask your friends, what will they say? If I ask your mother and your father, what would they say? If children, if I ask the children about the parents, what will they say? Does dad love football most or Jesus most? Which does he spend the most time studying? You know, we have no capacity like the capacity for self-deception. I have noticed that men that ought to think lowly of themselves think highly of themselves. And men that ought to be proud of what God has done in their life are often uh, falsely trapped in uh, uh, humi- humility. We don't judge ourselves rightly. The reason that Jesus was challenging Nicodemus so strongly was to get Nicodemus to take stock of his life. And I surely hope that he did. But the sad truth is we just don't know. How about you? Do you sit next to someone that you know is a fire-breathing Christian ready to kick down the gates of hell? What do they feel about you? Nobody knows my heart. You're right, not even you. But we can see your actions and they're a direct reflection of your heart. You know, Psalm 16 said, He made known to me the paths of life said that there were eternal pleasures at your right hand. Speaking of the right hand of God. Let's go to Exodus 15 and look at the right hand of God for a moment. In Exodus 15, beginning in the first verse, this is Moshe. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Moses could say that standing on the other side of the Red Sea. Not a life in a tomb on the other side of Egypt's tomb. He has become my salvation. He didn't just identify with the Passover. He was there when it actually passed him over. He didn't.
didn't just get up to the water's edge and say, I can see what will happen here. I can describe it. I'm a competent conversant on this subject. He went through the water, stood on the other side, and had that miraculous deed to show that the Lord had become his salvation. So let me ask you, what miraculous deed is in your life that shows that you are a regenerate born again? Oh, I prayed a prayer. I'm sorry. I cannot accept that as a miraculous sign that you are born again. I've met many men that said many things. Every politician that has run for office claims to be a Christian. You might have even been silly enough to accept that in the eight months leading up to their inauguration. But how do you feel eight months afterwards? I mean, universally. It's been going on for 200 years. Consider something. Saying that you're a pear does not make you a pear. Saying that you're a hamburger does not make you a hamburger. Saying that you are a Christian does not guarantee that you are a Christian. So if you had to take honest stock of your life right now, a white sheet of paper in front of you, and the only thing that you can put on that paper is what supernaturally has happened in your life that lets you know you are a new creature. What would you put there? In my own life, the power of sin that had so enslaved me was broken. I had terrible addictions that were gone instantaneously and have never returned. In my own life, my parents were so moved by what happened to me that they hated it and threw me out of their house. They felt convicted every time I was around. Watching Miami Vice in 1993 was no longer fun with Eric Stevens. Why has he got his Bible all of the time? The teachers in my school noticed. My entire peer group noticed. So I'm asking you. You know, when you look at Justin Linton. If you had a before and after picture, this is better than Weight Watchers, friends. You can't find a more obvious difference. I'm asking you, what in your life has given you the impression that you are a supernatural product today? We've been told all we have to do is agree with certain things. Believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Uh-huh. Ask him to be Lord of your life. Uh-huh. Oh, it's all done. But what if it's not? What if those were just words? What if you meant them at the time, but 20 minutes later had no commitment to them? Well, you might be a Christian in name only. You might sit next to somebody who's saved, but they know that you're not. This is not the kind of message that you're supposed to preach on Easter. Of course, Easter's not even really Easter. The actual holiday being celebrated here is Passover. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then catch this one because it's altogether important. The Feast of First Fruits. In other words, what came out of that tomb that day, it was a bundle. It was a special representative sample of the best that was in the field, guaranteeing like a down payment. Here is the beginning of the harvest, but there is an awful lot more coming exactly like this. 
Let me ask you, how do you compare to Christ this morning? Oh, we put on our Easter best, Pastor. We got on pretty dresses and funny hats. Right now, how do you compare to Christ? Man, I don't know if I want to go to a church like this. If you don't fit into a church like this, how are you going to spend an eternity with people more fired up than us? Maybe you inwardly know that you're not, but just don't want to face that truth. Well, you met people that are not going to give you that option today. There's one exit to this building, and it's right there. Our hope is that we want to go beyond the tomb. Our hope is that in studying that right hand of God, we find some truth that saves our lives. In Exodus 15, beginning in verse 1. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and the rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. All over the world. And I've traveled to the eastern hemisphere, the western hemisphere, north of the equator, south of the equator. We are presently supporting work and visiting works, both. That's the qualifier. Support them and visit them on every inhabitable continent other than Australia. Because when I was in school, it wasn't a continent. It was just a big island. When I traveled to those places... You know what Jesus is? He is a lily white, Scandinavian, blonde haired, blue eyed holder of a gentle lamb. That's what he is. I mean, what is your favorite passage of scripture that always yields two results? John 3.16, no idea what it means, but John 3.16, can't quote John 3.17, but John 3.16, we saw at a baseball game, so that's our favorite. Or All over the world, Psalm 23. I love Psalm 23. I love John 3.16. I love Jesus as the Lamb of God. But that is about the substitutionary death. That is about the tomb. I want a Christianity that goes beyond the tomb. The Lord is a warrior. That is His name. First and foremost, He will speak to you in a way that causes you to do warfare with your flesh. You will learn what it is that is killing you. The greatest enemy in your life stares at you in the mirror while you shave. Probably no additional commentary is needed in deference to our visiting pastors. chariots in his army the best of pharaoh's officers are drowned in the red sea the deep waters have covered them they sank to the depths like a stone oh man god didn't just knock the enemy out he dropped him like a rock i gotta tell you does your christianity look like that are you on the offense are you hiding from the gates of hell hoping that hell does not mess with you too much can i tell you 
I am a Christian leading other Christians who are storming the gates of hell. We're not sitting back waiting for the next attack. We are delivering it. Do you know why? Christianity is supposed to go beyond the tomb. We don't build castles and guard them. This is my church, Jesus said. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In Matthew 16, where that occurs, notice something. It is hell that is on the defense. It is hell that has built defensive structures. The vision of Jesus Christ regarding his church was not that it was commemorating a tomb, but that it was charging the very gates of hell, kicking them down and rescuing the lost. 30, 60, and 100 fold. Bare minimum. How are you doing? Christianity growing beyond the grave? Are you planting flowers to commemorate a life that was once set free while you were still, in fact, standing in a cemetery? Just let the awkwardness of that silence settle in for a minute. Do you stand among the dead searching for the living? That was a question first asked by angels. I'm asking you now. Do you stand in weak, dead Christianity with a reputation for being alive? It turns out that Moses credits God's victory to verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. The idea was that God, who had no form, had something like a right hand. This mystical force that showed up and acted on God's behalf for God's people. And man, is his right hand venerated in the scripture. I can't begin to give you the list, but I have scratched into the side of my Bible right here 21 references to the right hand of God delivering a knockout blow. It's a subject that I love. Cassius Clay, Jack Dempsey, George Foreman, all of those guys had crushing right hands. Nobody has got a hand like God. We innately know that if he will intervene in our situation, we can win. But again, that's the ministry of the grave. That's the ministry of the cross. God will do it for us. God will do it for us. God will do it for us. And that is a place to start for sure. The question is, has your Christianity ever gone beyond that to what you must do in his name? I just know he saved me. I just know he saved me. If that's all you can say, he may not have saved you. Because those who have been saved by him cannot wait for the rest of their brothers to get saved by him. And you are his chosen vehicle. Look at Psalm 80, verse 17. This was, I'm sorry, let's go to Isaiah 63, 11 first. <coughs> then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where, where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them? Who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand. Who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown. In the law, 
we see God a warrior. Moses saying it's as if his right hand was with us. In the prophets, we see them relating the Holy Spirit to God's right hand. And they're longing for him to show up in their life. Where is that arm of God? Where is his precious Holy Spirit? That's what they're asking. In Psalm 80, verse 17, look how they put it. (coughs) Let your right hand rest on the man at your right hand. Did you hear that say man? Did you know that there is a man at the right hand of God? Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. This is an extraordinary psalm. It's written a thousand years before Jesus, and it says that a man would be raised to the right hand of God. The hunger in the nation went beyond a tomb. It went beyond just save me. It went to something altogether more. You can be raised up with God. Look at the next verse. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. They knew. They knew that there would be somebody raised to the right hand of God that would revive Israel. Oh, that Christianity understood this more than words alone. We know that Jesus raised from the dead, but we don't get out of our own beds to do his will. We talk about missions. Is it safe there? We talk about evangelism, and we want to know what it will cost. We talk about church services, and we want to know how long they are and how late they are. Does that sound like resurrection power? Say, oh, on the one day a year that every church in the United States is going to stand and talk about the resurrection of Jesus, do you know what we need to do to get people in the building? We will drop Easter eggs from the sky for them and get a celebrity to entertain them. Does that sound like the church Jesus Christ died for to you? I understand the problem. The scripture so often cries out for God's hand of intervention. And we want that. And every once in a while you see him working through a man. Somebody like Noah, again in the law. In Genesis 9, in verse 20. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. We thought this was God's hand. I mean, after all, Noah saved the world, right? In chapter 8 and verse 4, you may never have seen this before. The ark came to rest on Mount Ararat in the seventh month and the 17th day. Later in the Exodus, the seventh month becomes the first month. In the first month on the 17th day... The same day that the ark rested on Ararat. This is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Noah. Noah is a preacher of righteousness, we find out in the New Testament. He he preached salvation. All that was saved was his family, but it was enough to restart the world. Oh, what hopes for Noah. And as soon as we have Noah, 
seeming to complete his task, what happens? He gets rip-roaring drunk. How we can be disappointed in our leaders. I spent many years contributing to the problem. I was a member of a Baptist church. No one ever explained to me how it was that Noah got rip-roaring drunk on Welch's grape juice. But they were sure drunkenness was wrong. So they got half of it right. They thought they saw God's hand in Noah. And in the end, you're disappointed. Because what looked like God's hand, in fact, turned out just to be a collapsible, regular, ordinary man. Man, we'd hoped there was something more there. Then you move to the prophets. You see in 2 Samuel 12, verse 9, about David, a man who has a heart like God. We've gone from the Savior of the world in Noah to a man with a, with a heart like God. Oh, we have such hopes for David. Why did you despise the word of the Lord, Nathan says to him? By doing what is evil in his eyes, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife. Oh, man, the one with a heart like God. We thought this was the very hand of God on the earth. We could count the fingers and see the attributes. We could see this is surely God's right hand. But the devil pushed just a little bit. And he became guilty of murder and adultery. How we get disappointed with our leaders. David has a son. His name is Solomon. He's the wisest on the earth. The queen of Sheba comes to see him. He appoints 12 regional governors. He begins a reign of unprecedented peace and prosperity in Israel. But in Ecclesiastes 2, in verse 10, he said, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure My heart took delight in all my work. And this was the reward for all my labor. In other words, he was preaching the same gospel that the American pastorate is preaching. God forbid you have to ride on a commercial airliner. You know, in 37 days, I spent 87 hours with an elder in this church in economy class. Flew to seven countries. Twelve times I went to Istanbul. For $3,200. Wonder what it cost to run that jet so Mr. Preacher doesn't have to be on a tube full of demons, he said, for a few hours. Man, you can see something that looks so much like God's hand. And then it gets pushed on just a little bit. And it wilts. It's spiritually impotent. It doesn't bring life. It doesn't really change anything. It is in fact a form of idolatry. Worship something that appears to have a form of godliness. 
but there's no power in it. How do you know? Because they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves to depravity. And we want something more. We want something more than the tomb. Beyond the tomb. We're waiting for that day that God reaches his hand down into a man. And he so puts him on that you can't see where the man ends and God begins. And you can't see where God ends and the man begins. And he stands strong no matter who pushes against him. And if he seems to bow, look out, he's just making a fist. We are longing to see God's hand inside of humanity. Have you ever read in Exodus, the third chapter, in the seventh verse? You see this, you see God's heart, he's longing for it. He says, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. I have what? God has come down to rescue them and to bring them up out of that land. God wanted to put on humanity and reach right through humanity and punch the gods of Egypt right in the face. And he did. The problem is, is that the same ones that he reached down into, it seemed to be a very temporary thing. Godly. One day of the week and not so godly the next. How are you doing with that? Do you have a relationship with the Lord that is consistently beyond the tomb? Or do you wait for every Sunday to get your relationship right with Him? We want to serve you in this place. But if you have become dependent upon what used to be an automotive garage, now carpeted, to get your relationship right with the Lord, how sad is your relationship? You haven't gone very far beyond the grave. We ought to get in this room and share the testimonies of the way we have kicked down the gates of hell that week. On the occasion that you got your head handed to you, your brother will go out with you the next week to ensure that the two of you chase the thousand. If it takes one elder to throw someone out, that's what we do. If it takes two, that's what we do. I don't know how many it's going to take, but we're willing to use all we got. God wants to reach down into our lives. He wants to put you on like a glove and deliver the knockout blow to the enemy. Look at Isaiah 6. Look at way the prophets cry for this. And you should notice something. Always we're starting in the law, moving to the prophets, finishing in the writing. This is to demonstrate to you that the total book is about this subject, that it's thoroughly through the entire word. We're not cherry picking verses here. Then I heard the voice of Yahweh, the Lord, saying, whom shall I send and who will go for? There's a man at his right hand. Who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. And aren't you glad he sent Isaiah? We learn more from the ministry of Isaiah about the Christ than almost any other book in the Bible. 
God was looking for someone that he might indwell, that he might fill, that he might be the words in their mouth. And when he does it, it is extraordinary. Consider the testimony of a wicked king, of a pagan nation, about one man in his nation filled with the very Spirit of God. How about Daniel 5.11? There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Is that incredible? What would the testimony of your boss be about you? Would your boss say, oh, he's a, he's a good worker. Boss said, no, he's got a terrible attitude. His boss say, oh, yeah, I've never even noticed him. Or would your boss say, you know that guy? He's got a different spirit in him than anybody else that I see. Christianity beyond the grave is something even the lost take notice of. Nebuchadnezzar, case in point. The last words recorded by him for the rest of humanity to read are as God is able to abase the proud. The man lost his mind for seven years. To which I say only seven. I've known people been out of their mind a lot longer than that. I want to move with you to the Newer Testament where we finish this message today. Because it's not enough to agree with me. It's not enough to talk about it. It's not enough to go, yeah, some people somewhere, they have that problem. I'm preaching very much to you. I'm preaching this message to you because you have this problem. There's no need to diffuse this into churches everywhere. If it didn't apply to you, I wouldn't be telling you now. You have to decide whether you want a pastor who tells you to your face the truth or a pastor that waits till you leave to say what you always needed to hear. It's not that I don't care whether you come or go. I'm blessed that you're here. But I'm most blessed that the presence of the Lord is here. And if I have to choose one or the other, do you have to guess what I will choose? Let me just say, you're good. But I have found something altogether better. The good news is you can have what I have found. Pick up with me in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. That's a mouthful, isn't it? If you love me, you will obey what I command. If you love me, you will You can say that you love Jesus all day long, but that does not make the words coming out of your mouth true. According to this verse, how do we know if you love him? What has the history of your life shown? Because I have observed many, many times when speaking to American Christians, they go right into Christianese. Oh, praise the Lord, brother. Praise the Lord. You say it's going to be another $137. They'll go right into profanity. How is it that we have such a duplicitous walk? How is it that you can stand around the coffee pot and talk about the same satanic shows that your neighbors are watching, but you are born of heaven? No, you have a Christianity that stopped at the tomb. 
It is not enough to know that Jesus died for you. It is not enough to agree that he died for you. It's not enough to acknowledge with your mouth that he died for you if your life never goes beyond the tomb. Because all you are proving is that you are well aware that there is a substitutionary sacrifice, but you have never availed yourself of the benefits of that sacrifice. Christianity is so much more than being redeemed. It is being redeemed unto a purpose. The continual sanctification of the Christian until the glorification of his body. So many are like Martha. We know, Lord, at the last day we'll see that. No, you're supposed to see it today. He is the resurrection and the life. In John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Uh, Let's turn that around for you just in case I haven't done it enough. If you are not obeying him, you do not love him. Say, so, well, in my heart, your heart is completely worthless. Let's just get that right out there. Your heart is the worst indicator of the truth that you possess. Well, in my heart of hearts, it doesn't matter how many times you say it, it becomes less cute and, and, and no more true. If you love me, you will obey what I command. That's not with a wink and nod that goes, but we know nobody can really obey him. That's, that is not there. That is an invention of the commercial church. He expects holiness. He literally says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Let's take verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor. Say another. Another Another counselor to be with you how long? Oh man, he's talking about not a one-time filling. He's talking about being filled so often and so much that that glove would never bow the knee to Baal again. You would be so full of God that you couldn't be full of anything else. When people saw you, they would see the very form of God. When they pushed against you, it would be like they were dealing with God himself. You would become an ambassador for his great name. He clarifies himself in the next verse. The spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. For he lives with you and he shall be God wanted a vessel to fill to the fullest. This was not about an empty tomb. This was about the results of the empty tomb. This was about what would happen the next day. Getting saved meant getting right with God at the cross so that you could be empowered from on high, so that God would reach down into what would be now a clean vessel and so fill you that his work would be done through you. The power of the empty tomb was that now... The power of God could fill the emptiness of your life. Not just to forgive you. Man, forgive you. It's amazing how selfish we can make the cross. What good would it be to forgive you if it went no further than you? And by the way, if that's how this works, how would you get saved? How many of you were standing at the cross? How many of you born native to Israel? 
How many of you are from royal descent? No, I suspect that you, like me, had to hear the gospel from somebody who was redeemed by it, filled with power, became a witness, shared that, and that royal line has been going from the first century in a little town in Israel all the way to here. What responsibility do you now have? Say, well, I identify with Jesus. So did Nicodemus. Say, I even speak in defense of Jesus sometimes. So did Nicodemus. You don't understand. I have a place for Jesus in my heart. In your cold, stony little heart, you hewned out a room for Jesus. If a grave couldn't contain him, what makes you think your heart will contain him? It's my supposition today that if the only place Jesus is found is hidden in the recesses of your heart, he's not actually there. If the grave couldn't contain him, then how do you think he could fill your heart and no one could see because your heart contained him? There is no place for secret Christianity. It is bold. It is outward. It is absolutely spiritually aggressive. We are the apex predator on the planet and the gates of hell should be on defense from you. Let us pick up in Revelation 3 in verse 1. I was instructed by friends in Romania and since they're both better looking, wiser, and more anointed than me, I decided to take their advice. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words... Of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. How interesting that God says that to so many churches in Revelation. I know your deeds. He doesn't say I've examined your creed. He doesn't say I looked at your doctrinal statement. He comes right out and says I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive. But you are dead. Oh man. How many people sit in this room and you say, I'm a Christian. My mom knows I'm a Christian. I got the little white Bible from when I was baptized as a child. The pages still stick together when you open it because none of us ever read it. You have a reputation for being alive, but you sit among us dead right now. Oh man, that's, I believed in my heart. Did that belief in your heart ever make it beyond the tomb of your heart that you've tried to bury Jesus in? Real Christianity cannot be contained in a stony grave or a stony heart. Real Christianity goes so far beyond the center of the human being, it affects every human being that that person knows. How can you be saved if you are not shaking the lives of the people that are around you? How can you be saved if you are not... Filled with God like my hand fills this glove. Oh, well, because pastors told us we were. Examine this book and find out whether their lives look like yours. Would you read a book? Would you read a holy book that their Christianity looked like yours? Man, that's a fair question, isn't it? So we put them in some other class. No, 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 man, those were the apostles. Stephen was an apostle? Well, no. Philip? Philip Philip the evangelist, an apostle? No. James? Well, James was an apostle, but 
He was the Lord's brother. He wasn't one of the twelve. I mean, you start looking at this and you find out most of the Bible was written by men who were not in the original twelve. Look, I, I don't want to go to theological. Oh, I may have already declared that war. I'm growing tired of it. I'd like to move beyond this to your actual life. If your life was the one chosen to be in the book of Acts, what would that instruction be like? Would everybody believe that the gospel was ongoing and active and that you could be filled with the Lord many times, that He would reach into you and His work on earth would be done through you? Or would the story essentially be two lines long? Felt bad about his life, came to an altar, asked for a new life, end of story. Man, we might have some actual work to do, huh? Look at how he finishes this in verse 2. Wake up. Can you tell that I'm trying to wake you today? Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to... Now, there's some debate. Are they dead? They have a reputation for being alive, but they're dead. Now he says, well, you know, you need to wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. I don't know whether you're old enough to catch this reference, but they were mostly dead. Little princess bride. I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Did you hear why they were mostly dead? It had to do with their actions. You've been told your whole walk, it's about your faith, about your faith, about your faith. It turns out that the way that God knows whether or not you have faith is by how you act. The way He knows whether or not you have love is by how you act. See, the lie that is being taught is that you can believe in a life that goes way beyond the grave, but it doesn't have to be found anywhere in your life. It's simply untrue. It's the product of a consumer-driven, Americanized gospel of greed. That's not what the Bible teaches. And the reason I'm railing against it is not to make enemies. I had those before I was railing against it. It's because he deserves better. I'm just going to get out there and tell you, you deserve better. That's no real kind of life anyway. That kind of Christianity, if you're honest with yourself, means that you feel guilty when you're in church. And when you're away from church, you do your very best to forget about the guilt that you felt. Your commitments to the Lord never last more than 24 or 48 hours. And then you're right back in whatever you promised to never do again. I could call names, but you know I'm telling you the truth. There is more available for you than that. Because a life that goes beyond the grave, one that is truly filled like my hand fills this glove, you're empowered in ways you never were before. Have you stopped short of receiving the power over sin? Have you stopped staring into an empty tomb and you went no further when you're actually supposed to receive the power that emptied the tomb? Go with me to Ephesians.
In Ephesians, the first chapter. Do you know seven times in six chapters, Paul mentions the power of God in Ephesians? It's almost like he was obsessed with the subject. In the first chapter, beginning in verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us. His what? Incomparably great power for us. Would anybody that you know describe your life as being filled with incomparably great power? Look at what, how he defines it. That power is like the working of his mighty strength. His mighty strength when he raised Jesus from the dead. Is that incredible? Which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The power that is supposed to fill your life is the same power that emptied that tomb. Do you have resurrection power filling you? Oh man. I'm charismatic, Pentecostal, spirit filled to the core. I didn't even know what it was when it happened to me, but I was against it. Find out most people who are against it have no idea what it is. That's why they're against it. He so filled my life that I began to believe that my life mattered. He so filled my life that I began to believe that God would work through my life the same way my hand is working through this glove. He so filled my life that just like a man going to work puts on gloves, I asked the Lord to put me on every day. Said, mighty God, carve out a little more of me that you might fill it with your presence. Today, give me a chance to lay a shot on the enemy. Today, mighty God, give me a chance. Just one more time, let me get revenge for my eyes from these Philistines. That's a life that is moving beyond the grave. It's a life that wants more than forgiveness. It wants to deliver a shot to the enemy. Is that how you would describe your life? Pastor, we go to church. What else do you want from us? Man, if all you'll do is come to church, I don't want you. Never have. We want exactly as many people as can be discipled. That's what we want. He never told me to go fill churches. He never told me to make Christians. He told me to make disciples. And he didn't tell me alone. That command is for every person in this room. You are to be making disciples. But to make disciples, they'll have to see God's hand working in your life. Or they won't want what you have because you don't have what you say you have. 30 Christians, that's a lot. No, look around you. I mean, how'd you get here? It's not a lot. I mean, it's the bare minimum. It's the bare minimum for a life filled with the Lord. He can do immeasurably more than you could ask for or imagine. It feels like a lot because we're living lives that never went beyond the grave. I will not stand in a room 2,000 years after a resurrection and pretend. What good would that do any of us? You either do or do not have an extraordinary, overwhelming, supernatural, outward-flowing river from your life. 
You either do or do not. Pride is such a dangerous thing. We're going to turn to one more book of the Bible. One more book and one more book only. It's the book of Acts. But it's got quite a few chapters. Let's go to Acts, the first chapter. Let's pick up in verse 1. Let's pick up in verse 4. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is after the resurrection of the dead. The idea was that they could be credited righteousness for being crucified with him. For picking up their cross daily and following him. They could be credited righteousness for a life that was striving after obedience. God would credit them righteousness. But that was not enough. He wanted a life that went way beyond that. A life that went way beyond the grave. He said, you wait right here in Jerusalem until you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. There are many jokes about this, but I'm not in a joking mood. And yet I can't help but say it. If they had left, they would have made fine Baptist ministers. We have no need of empowerment. We got all we could get at the cross. Well, none of the apostles did. Mary, the mother of Jesus, didn't. The 120 in the upper room didn't. Believers in Cornelius' house didn't. The believers in Samaria in Acts 8 didn't. The believers in Acts 19 didn't. Don't let your theology choke the life out of you. Don't let that happen. Don't let pride sink you. Your life is either beyond the grave or you're standing in a grave claiming to be attached to the living one. In Acts 1 verse 4, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Jesus talked to them about the filling of this glove. He talked to them about the almighty filling with the Holy Spirit. How would you know if you had been filled? How would you know that you know that you know your life is beyond the grave? Look at verse 8. 7. 8. <laughs> but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses, my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So let me ask you, believer, or non-believer, or pretending believer, has your life reached beyond your city? Man, has it even reached beyond your house? Has it reached beyond the recesses of your cold, stony heart and touched your family yet? How can we say we've received the empowerment meant to take the gospel to the whole world if it hasn't made it out of the recesses of your heart and touched everyone you know? 
See, Christianity, first and foremost, is outward focused. First and foremost, Christianity flows out of the person because Jesus came out of a grave. It could never be contained in one building, never contained within one life. The power of the resurrection fills a man and it leaks outward in every direction. Now you could lie to me. We'll both know you're lying. But what that means is you have to go home and continue the same cycle. Guilt and shame while at church. Trying to forget about that guilt and shame while you're away. Kind of winking and nodding with yourself that you're right with God because of some previous experience, but you are not living right with God now. You can even decide that the real problem with all this is that fat redneck preacher. A lot of people have come to that conclusion and it's okay. None of that will alleviate the pain that you feel when you go to bed. None of that will fix what we both know is broken in your life. You will just pass it on to another generation that will be more screwed up than you are. I've watched it now. I'm a grandfather. means I can get away with saying that. I've watched this now enough to know that those of you with broken, diseased Christianity produce children that are worse than you. If you let that go three or four generations, at least they don't pretend anymore. We are supposed to change a thousand generations after us for the better. If you're not affecting your generation, how do you possibly hope to affect a thousand? Man, you guys got to bruise the fruit ministry. I was told that a few months ago by a reprobate. You have to consider the source sometimes. What kind of ministry did Jesus have? He had an axis at the root ministry. Let's go to Acts 2.4. I told you we'd stay in the same book. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. I'm not going to lay out the charismatic Pentecostal doctrine regarding this. If you've been here any length of time, you hear us speaking in tongues. You know we're not working ourselves into a trance. And for those of you that are foolish enough to think we make it up, I was saved for 24 years now. The years before that, I never once made up tongues. I've never been in a bar room and heard somebody making up tongues. I've been all over the world. The only people I've ever heard that say that there's a demonic tongue are people that don't speak in tongues. And they never heard it firsthand. They always knew somebody who knew somebody. When you get filled with the Holy Ghost, you become an amazing witness. When you get filled with the Holy Ghost, He leaks out in every kind of way, even in your languages when you pray. If you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God, we want to pray for you to become a witness. We want to pray for you to become an outward flowing river. We want to pray for you to have a prayer life that actually is worth something means something that is full of life and power. If you get more excitement from ESPN than your prayer life, then how can you be saved? You love when we preach on idolatry unless we preach on your idols. I want to show you in a last example what happens when you get filled with the Holy Ghost. Turn to chapter 3. This will be our last text 
I love the body of Christ. I love the body of Christ enough to talk to you like I talk to my children. Gabriel, do I talk to you like this at home? Did our day begin like this today? Did you miss prayer time this morning? Yeah. And, and how was our conversation about that? It was forward. It was frank. Do you know why? Is there any person in this room that believes that I don't love that young man? You can't know me very well and believe that. You know, I love him. And I know what real Christianity looks like. And we're not going to settle for anything less than all that God has called him to. Now, if I am a substitute for your firstborn child that did not go work at the temple, if I am something like a holy priesthood, and I don't love you just like I love him, then what are we doing here? Well, most are used to a church that's a fee for service. You pay me to make you feel better about what you already know and are not doing. That's not going to happen. That'll never happen. I don't do it for my own relatives. I won't do it for you. You know why? Jesus Christ deserves your full obedience. Every, every part of it. Not after your college years. Not when you decide to settle. He deserves it right now. Not one more minute of hesitation. He deserves it right now. And He will fill you with the power to do it. Do you know that almost every Christian who is in here today was at one time a backslidden, lukewarm Christian? But then they met people that went beyond the grave. And when they look back on their Christian life, they go, Man, I don't even know if I was saved. I mean, I didn't know either. But we know now, don't we? Nicodemus is a towering figure in the Scripture. But you cannot settle his salvation. The Jews don't know whether he was saved, and the Christians don't know whether he was saved. How would we have to handle yours? In John 3, you see the acts of what saved people do. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to bed from those who were going in the temple courts. When Peter saw, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Do you have a sense that there's a little bit of confrontation here? Peter looked straight at him. John looked straight at him. They look at him and say, you look at us. said, yeah, expecting to get something. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk, taking him by the right hand. He helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. The Lord of glory had reached down into Peter and John and put them on like a glove and he grabbed the right hand of the man. And all of a sudden the power of God was there for a new walk in their life. Could that have been your hand? Could that be your hand right now? You can't give people what you don't have. You can't do it. In fact, you create an animosity for the very religion that you say you're a part of. 
Because the one thing the world has no tolerance for are those that say that they are Christians and live like hell. Well, they love you at parties because they're not convicted by your life at all. But they actually hate it because you're proving what they already thought was true. I can't do this. See, the thing is, most people are living a life stuck at the tomb because they really don't believe that God will fill them with the strength to break sin. They don't really believe it. They go to churches that don't believe it. They don't believe it. And with a wink and a nod, we excuse ongoing habitual sin in people's life as just part of living in this flesh. I'm here to tell you, hell no. The power of God can fill your life in a way that you can leave those grave clothes behind. You can walk from that tomb and you can carry the very fist of God right to the mouth of hell in every direction. And the King of Kings is worthy of nothing less than that. On this Resurrection Sunday, how is it that you honor Him? Do you go get an egg, go get a bunny, or send some money to the Vatican? How about you say silver and gold I don't have? Stand up and walk. Church, for you to do that with people, you will have to have received that power yourself. In just a minute, we're going to stand to our feet on this side by the drums. We're going to pray for people who want to speak in other tongues or prophesy for the first time. Right here in the middle, we're going to pray for the healing of any person who is sick in this room. Over here by the chalkboard, Those of you who said, my life's never gone beyond the tomb. I've said about, like like Nicodemus, I've had an encounter with Jesus. I even thought that we were friends because I defend him sometimes. I've said I've been born again, but there is no supernatural evidence of his existence in my ongoing life. Come over here by the board. We'll pray for you. You do not have to walk out of this room carrying an empty tomb with you. This can be the day. I'm telling you, it has to be the day. You may not get another opportunity. That's not a preacher's trick. Oh, you could die in a car accident, any of those ridiculous things. That's not it. I'm pretty sure none of you will die in a car accident on the way home. Okay? So you can relax. That's not a good motivator. I wouldn't want it to motivate you. How about this? Try this one on for size. If you insult the Spirit of grace, He may not be willing to make this offer to you again. Could you stand to your feet?